everyone. Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. If you're like me, you've been meaning to cut back on sugar. You might have even made a resolution about that a few months ago when the new year kicked in. No judgments if it hasn't quite worked out like that. I can tell you it hasn't really been going well for me. We all know that most Americans get way too much of the sweet stuff, and even if you aren't trying to lose weight, you might be looking to limit it just for your overall health. But could you quit sugar for an entire month and go one step further and ditch all sweeteners for that time? Our next guest did just that. He's Robert Allen, an editor here at WebMD, and he joins us now to tell us exactly what the plan was, why he did it, and what the results were. Hey, Robert, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. It's good to be here. What inspired you to do this? My husband and I just realized how much sugar we were eating all the time, buying you know brownies and bringing them home. I was hitting the candy bowl at work several times a day, every day. And over the last two years, I've gained about 10 pounds. And I'm the kind of person who doesn't normally, um, my weight never fluctuates. So I've realized I got to do something. So we settled on cutting out sugar to try to, you know, learn how to eat better. Nice. It is amazing how it really creeps up on you. You don't, like, before long, you're like, I've been doing this every day without really realizing that I've made it such a habit. Yep, yep. It's really hard to break, too. Yeah. So what was your, what was your plan? So it's a 30-day plan, and we um, looked on the Internet for one that we thought would work for us. And it's pretty simple. For the first three days, you eat no sugar at all and no artificial sweeteners at all. That means you also can't have anything that has natural sugar in it, like milk, bread, um, fruit, things like that. Boy, so that's tough. It is tough for three days, yeah. You can basically eat um, meat, eggs, and vegetables, and things like beans for three whole days. And that's kind of it. And so it was a lot of bacon and eggs in the morning, a salad for lunch, a salad with chicken for dinner, and you just sort of repeat that for three days. And so that sort of teaches your body to reset and to not expect sugar all the time. Then on day four, you can start bringing in foods slowly that have sugar in them. So on day four, we were allowed to eat one apple a day. And then I think on day seven or eight, we were allowed to bring berries in. And so we start eating berries again. And then carrots, which are a little bit sweet, but, you know, really good for you. There's just, uh, just like that. And so you keep on bringing foods in every once in a while. Okay, just kind of slowly ramping up. Yep. But you're still not allowed to have any artificial sweeteners or add any sugar or eat anything that has added sugar, including honey and, you know, agave nectar and things like that. There are, I would imagine, there's quite a few plans on that you could find online with a lot of different approaches to this, some pretty reasonable, some maybe not so reasonable. How did you select the plan? How did you decide that it was going to be, uh, you know, kind of a nutritionally sound, reasonable plan to go with? Well, there are um, books and there are like uh, online plans that you can buy and follow, but we didn't want to do that. So we just um, did a lot of online research. We read a lot of articles about sugar cleanses or sugar detox, things like that. And we sort of put one together that we thought would work the best for us. And that also wasn't forcing us to buy products or, or um, make drastic changes to our lives other than what we're going to eat. And we just stuck it up on the fridge. You know, we typed it up onto a piece of paper, stuck it up on the fridge, and we just followed it for the next 30 days. And this one, you know, you don't, like I said, you don't have to buy any plans. 
You don't have to buy any extra foods. You don't have to do anything other than just change the way you shop at the grocery store for 30 days. That's it. When you were adding in the sweet things like the fruits or carrots, how did did it taste different to you? Oh, that apple was the best apple <laughs> I've had best in my apple life. Of your life. <laughs> and I don't even like apples that much. And I was so happy to be able to eat that apple on day four. I was just like, oh, yes, it tastes so good. <laughs> this is so sweet. I never yeah, realized. <laughs> exactly. And so you start to appreciate the natural sweetness in foods like apples and carrots and things like that. That would be a big change. Um, were there any foods that you really missed during that time, even though even after you started adding back in? Well, you're allowed to drink all the coffee and tea that you want, but it has to be black coffee and black tea. And I hate black coffee, yeah. but I drank it anyway, just because that's my routine in the morning. And so every morning I would sit there with this black coffee and think, oh, God, I hate this. But I would just force myself to drink it. <laughs> so that's, <laughs> that's what I missed the most, really. It was just you know having a little sugar in my coffee. So you just wrapped up this 30-day challenge a few days ago. What were the benefits that you noticed after you were finished? Well, one is um, I lost weight. And I wasn't actually planning on losing weight because it's not really a weight loss plan. It's just a get-off-a-sugar plan. But after two weeks, I'd actually lost three pounds. Wow. And then I put one pound back on. So it was a total <laughs> net loss of two. But that was a surprise, and I was really happy to see that because I wasn't actually trying to lose weight. Yeah, but it really can, that shows you it really can make a big difference. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you also learn how to eat in a better way, in a more healthy way, because you're eating a lot of vegetables, and you have to learn what ones you like and how you can cook them without using any sort of sugar or honey or anything like that. So a lot of sautéed vegetables, a lot of um, roasted vegetables, things like that. And then when you get to eat, when you want to eat a dessert, you eat fruit, which is really good for you. So it just sort of retrains you how to eat properly. And you're not buying all these prepackaged goods, all these baked goods, stuff with sugar that you don't need, like yogurt that has added sugar in it, uh, spaghetti sauce that has added sugar in it, um, salad dressings have sugar in them. Yeah. You don't need all that stuff. I would imagine this also brings a new awareness to how much sugar is in just the everyday foods, even things that aren't sweet. Absolutely. Yeah, like the things I just mentioned, like who who would have thought that, you know, pasta sauce needs sugar, but they put it in it anyway. Um, salsa will have sugar in it, added sugar. Why? Like, why, did, why does it need to be there? Yeah. It's in so many things that you buy from the grocery store. And so when you start looking at all the labels, you're like, wow, I can't eat this for the next 30 days. So you start learning how to make your own salad dressings or uh, make your own spaghetti sauce from fresh tomatoes, you know, things like that. Yeah. What was the hardest part of all this for you? I think the hardest part was just having to say no to so many foods that you're used to eating. People will try to tempt you with, you know, a cookie or a dessert or something kind of mean. that you're not allowed to have. And so you have to keep saying no. You have to really be strong and say, no, I can't eat that, at least not, at least not for the next, you know, 21 days or something like that. I know that you've you've done this before. You and I have talked about a little bit about how you've tried to avoid sugar before, but this time, uh, what was different about this approach that you took? Well, when we did it the first time, we were you know it was very successful and we enjoyed it, but um, we sort of slipped back into our old habits pretty quickly. So we decided that we need to do this again. But then when it's done, we need to try to just continue to eat that way so that we are looking at labels and making sure that those that there's no added sugar and we need to 
just make sure that we stick to a healthy eating plan from now on. We might have to do it again if, you know, we like to bake. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> Can't really do that without sugar. <laughs> and it slowly creeps up on you. You know, a year later, you'll be like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm eating all this sugar again. And I didn't even realize it because it's just easier to grab something off the shelf at the grocery store than to have to make it from scratch yourself. And so you start to slip back into your old ways. So we're really going to try hard this time to try to carry on the lessons that we have learned and just keep, you know, trying to eat in a healthy way. Got it. Well, it's good to know that it can be done for all of us who are trying to make it happen. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. If you found Robert's experiences as inspiring as we did, but you aren't quite ready to go cold turkey when it comes to getting rid of the sugar in your diet, these tips can help you cut back. For starters, choose fresh foods over packaged items. Manufacturers often use sugar to extend a product's shelf life, and they don't always call it sugar on the label. Look for terms like evaporated cane juice, fruit juice concentrate, brown rice syrup, malt syrup, corn syrup, date syrup, barley malt, and galactose or glucose. If you can't face the morning without sugar in your tea or coffee, cut back in steps. If you usually add two spoonfuls, try it with one and a half. Before long, you may just take it black. And remember that honey and agave are both sources of sugar. Boost the flavor in your favorite morning beverage with cinnamon, vanilla extract, or unsweetened cocoa powder instead. And the next time you hit up the corner coffee shop, ask for an ingredient list. That frothy drink you love so much might be full of added sugar. And speaking of mornings, ditch a sugary, kid-friendly cereal for a cooked option like oatmeal, just not the instant type. Add mashed bananas or apples and cinnamon to give it some punch. If you're still drinking sugary sodas, try to find a better option. A regular 12-ounce can has 8 teaspoons of sugar. A diet soda is a better choice, but if it's bubbles you need, there are a lot of calorie-free sparkling waters out there with fruity flavors. One of them might just rock your world. Instead of candy or baked goods, choose fruit to satisfy your sweet tooth. But you don't have to limit it to snack time. Grilled or roasted fruit, like baked apples, roasted pears, and grilled pineapple, make a mean side dish. And some veggies get sweeter when you cook them, like sweet potatoes, carrots, onions, and red peppers. Don't be afraid to tinker with your recipes, either. Replace a quarter of the sugar you'd normally use with sweet-smelling spices like vanilla, cinnamon, or nutmeg. You detect 80% of flavor through your nose anyway, so you probably won't be able to tell the difference. And you'll get extra nutrients like calcium, fiber, iron, magnesium, and vitamins A, C, and K. If you're baking, use unsweetened applesauce in place of sugar for goodies like muffins, banana bread, and cakes. It adds texture and taste. You can do a one-for-one -one swap of applesauce for sugar and cut the other liquids required by a quarter of a cup. When it's time to frost a cake, try this recipe. Mix two ripe avocados in a blender or food processor. Add a half cup of cocoa powder, a quarter cup of maple syrup, and one quarter teaspoon of vanilla extract, and add salt to taste. Is chocolate your weakness? You can still have it, just go dark. It has less sugar than milk or white chocolate. Opt for 70% cocoa or higher. And don't overdo it. One to two ounces a few times a week is plenty. Be careful with sauces. Sugar lurks in barbecue sauce, ketchup, and salad dressings. Whip up your own vinaigrette instead with olive oil, red wine vinegar, Italian spices, and garlic. Use fresh or dried herbs to flavor meats instead of sauce or marinade. 
or find sugar-free pasta sauces and add your own herbs for a zesty boost. It won't be easy to say goodbye to sugar, but like anything worthwhile, you'll get better the more you practice. Hello, I'm Dr. John White, WebMD's Chief Medical Officer. My guest today is from the New York Times, Anahad O'Connor. Anahad O'Connor is a best-selling author and reporter for the New York Times. He joined the paper in 2003 and writes for Science Times, the paper's weekly science and health section. Anahad writes about consumer health, medicine, science, and other topics. He's won several accolades, most recently a 2018 award from the Association of Healthcare Journalists. He's a frequent guest on national media programs, including PBS NewsHour, Good Morning America, and NPR's All Things Considered. Welcome, Anahad. Hi, great to be here. You know, you had a recent article that talked about how only 6% of Americans follow resistance training. Were you surprised by that number, and and why is it so low? You know, I was surprised at how low it was. I wasn't surprised that it was um, a very small number, but but just, you know, that small was really shocking. Uh, The thing is, most Americans, you know, do not get regular exercise. Um, and I think the numbers are even lower for resistance training because for a lot of people, it can be, um, there are certain barriers to resistance training. Number one, you know, a lot of people walk into a gym and, you know, there are the, there's the cardio room or, you know, the aerobic machines, the treadmill, the Stairmaster. Um, those things are pretty intuitive, but when you walk over to the weight room, if you're new to it, um, you know, a lot of people don't know what to do with the dumbbells or they look at these big machines that look like these torture devices <laughs> or, you know, contraptions and they don't know what to do. I see it all the time, people on these machines who are clearly new to it and, and um, doing it incorrectly um, or not in a way that's very, <laughs> that's going to be helpful. And, you know, so there's that. It's not intuitive. Um, second of all, it can be intimidating in that, you know, you might walk into a weight room and there, you know, um, people might see, you know, very muscular, jacked people who look a little frightening. And, you know, there's definitely an intimidation factor. And then also you can get injured if you don't know what you're doing. I've had numerous patients tell me over the years that they need to get in shape before they can go to the gym. So you're right, that intimidation factor. You wrote this article about the optimal diet for humans recently, and and you looked at a study of modern hunter-gatherers. So so I have to ask, where did you find these hunter-gatherers? Because that's not happening here in the United States. And and, and what did you learn uh, in that piece? Yeah, so this was a really fascinating piece of research. So, you know, I obviously I cover consumer health. One of my passions and the things I write about a lot is nutrition and its impact on chronic disease. And uh, nutrition, I'd say, is about as controversial a topic as religion. You know, everyone has a very strong, passionate opinion. Um, And in a sense, you sort of have to because we all have to eat. You know, we all generally eat, um, you know, three meals or more a day. Um, And so, people naturally have an opinion uh, on the best foods to eat. Um, And if you cover nutrition, you'll see that there's, you know, in a sense, these sort of diet wars between people who follow, you know, a plant-based diet or a vegan diet or a low-carb diet or a high-fat diet, high-protein diet, 
carnivore diet, there's just a, there's a million different diets, um, gluten, uh, gluten-free diet. Um, and a lot of people get very passionate about, you know, about their diets, you know, which they believe are optimal. Uh, but what these, uh, these researchers did for this study, um, you have a group at, at Hunter College in New York, and uh, there is a researcher there named Herman Ponser who spent a lot of time with the Hadza, which is a group of hunter-gatherers in Tanzania. Um, and they pretty much live today as their ancestors have for thousands of years, um, following largely the same diet. Um, you know, they get up each morning. They, the women go out and they forage for, um, you know, certain plants and, and berries. The men go out and they, they hunt um, or look for honey. And this is what they've been doing for thousands and thousands of years. And like a lot of other modern hunter-gatherer societies around the globe, they tend to have very low rates of chronic disease, um, you know, very low rates of heart disease, cancer, diabetes is almost unheard of, obesity is almost unheard of in these populations. And so these researchers said, well, let's study them and see, you know, why is it that they have these very low rates of chronic disease um, that are so prevalent in our society? And they looked at both the Hadza, um, a lot of other groups around the globe, like the Chamani in South America, who are also known for having some of the best cardiovascular health um, on the planet um, as a group. And they looked at their diets to see what are they eating, and they found that um, their diets pretty much um, are not identical. You know, they all have very low rates of chronic disease, but their diets are not the same. Um, but there were some sort of general takeaways about what they eat, um, which seems to be protective for them, which is they eat a lot of plants, mm-hmm. um, a lot of fiber. They're getting way more fiber than the average American. Um, they're generally eating uh, some meat or fish, um, not every day, but they, you know, they do get some meat or fish, um, and they are eating, in some cases, um, uh, certain amounts of honey. Um, and then they also... should eat honey every day? Is that what? Is that what <laughs> no, but surprisingly, the Hadza, for example, and some other groups can, at certain times of the year, consume lots of honey. So they do consume some sugar. But one thing they don't consume is uh, uh, processed foods. Right. So they're not eating, you know, they're not drinking sugary beverages, which, mm-hmm. you know, the intake of those is very high in the West. They're not eating, you know, potato chips and, uh, you know, ice cream and all kinds of packaged snacks. They're eating generally a small um, sort of uh, select group of foods um, that are that are very that are basically whole foods. But there wasn't an optimal diet per se that everyone followed. It was rather some of those consistencies that, that you just mentioned. Is that right? And even though we're not going to revert and be hunter-gatherers, really the elimination of processed foods can play an important role in our overall health. Yeah, that seems to be one of the big takeaways, which is that uh, humans are omnivores. You know, there's, it doesn't appear that there's one perfect diet for us. We can basically, you know, we evolved to survive on um, the foods that are close and that are local um, and that are natural. Um, and so this idea that we should all be eating low carb or we should all be vegan or we should all be eating, you know, a very strict certain diet, uh, this study suggests that that's not the case. Um, but really what we should be doing perhaps is just focusing on eating um, just real, natural, whole foods, um, you know, that are high in fiber um, and that are not ultra processed. And one of the, the interesting things is that so these groups are eating tremendously high amounts of fiber that they're getting from their environment. 
Um, and one of the hallmarks of ultra-processed foods is that they are very low in fiber. They're the reverse. You have to strip the fiber out to give them a long shelf life. Right. And as many folks know, as, as you know, uh, fiber helps make us feel full, something called satiated, uh, and then it also helps you know, with our glucose uh, and insulin release. Now, I understand that you're an expectant father. Congratulations. Thank um, you. Now, uh, tell, me how, away. tell me how you think your fitness regimen will change, and then uh, I'll tell you how it actually will. So, so. <laughs> sure, it's going to be a challenge. I'll have much less time in the day for exercise. I mean, right now, exercise is the priority for me. I probably exercise about 45 minutes, uh, four to six days a week. It's actually at least five days a week. Um, and I'm sure I'm going to have to be much more diligent about scheduling it, about planning it. Uh, luckily, my wife is also really into exercise, so um, you know she'll be understanding, and I think we'll be able to come up with a schedule that works for us, where I can you know maybe run to the gym first thing in the morning, and then you know take over the duties when I get back, and then she can exercise you know while I'm with the baby, mm-hmm. but. I'm expecting that the amount of time I have to exercise will be drastically reduced. <laughs> what do you're going you, you to gonna have that? to let us know how that goes because it's just not lack of time, but your lack of sleep will make you <laughs> very tired. Uh, and then your limited time when you, you do have free, I'm not sure you'll, you'll want to use uh, to go exercise, but you might. And, you know, I'm interested to hear you know, a lot of folks don't often think about exercise really as a key to longevity as well. And as parents, we want to be around for our children and and be healthy. Does that factor into your mind as well? Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's one of the big ones is, you know, exercising for longevity and exercising so that I can be healthy enough to be around um, a long time for my kids and also to set good examples for them. Um, you know, so my wife and I are, you know, we're thinking, you know, when the baby comes, you know, one thing we can try to do is commit to, to taking daily walks, you know, getting, you know, taking the stroller, putting the baby in the stroller and just going for a walk for, you know, for a 30 minute walk when we can, um, you know, just whatever we can do to, to get moving, um, we're going to try to do. Um, but I think the sleep is going to be a big issue. Is, is there, do you have any advice? I'm, I'm sure all our listeners as well as <laughs> folks here are chuckling to ourselves. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you're going to do that. But you're right. It, it is about planning and it is about rolling with it because you, your time is no longer your own, but in a very good way. Well, thank you, Anahad, for joining me today. And uh, I'm going to check in with you in a few months and uh, see how your fitness regimen is, is going. Sounds good. Send me any, any tips or advice in the meantime if you have it. <laughs> All right. Very good. You can probably name a few things off the top of your head that can raise your blood pressure. Salty food, stress, anger. In fact, there are a lot of things that can have the same effect, and some of them you probably wouldn't suspect. Although salt gets the bad rap, added sugar may be an even more important cause of higher blood pressure, especially when it comes in processed forms like high-fructose corn syrup. A 24-ounce soft drink causes an average 15-point spike in systolic pressure, 
that's the top number of a reading, and a nine-point rise in diastolic, that's the bottom number. If you drink that soda and then have to pee, that could make your numbers go up too. In one study of middle-aged women who hadn't gone to the bathroom in at least three hours, their top and bottom numbers went up an average of four and three points, respectively. Men and women of different ages saw similar effects. You can also get a higher reading if you haven't had enough water to drink. Dehydration makes your blood vessels tighten up, which boosts the pressure inside of them. It's part of the process your body is using to hang on to as much fluid as it can until you add more. Now you know that feelings of stress or anger might lead to higher blood pressure, but so can loneliness. And the longer you feel less connected to others, the worse the problem gets. In one study, the systolic pressure, remember that's the top number in the reading, of the loneliest people went up more than 14 points over four years. The researchers think an ongoing fear of rejection and disappointment and feeling more alert about your safety and security may change how your body works. Sudden pain can cause a pressure spike. So can some medicines like certain pain relievers, antidepressants, and decongestants. Hormonal birth control, whether that's pills, injections, or other devices, can do it too, especially if you're over 35, a smoker, or overweight. And herbal supplements like ginkgo, ginseng, and St. John's wort not only raise your blood pressure, they can also affect how well blood pressure medicines work. Your pressure might go up because of another health problem too. People with sleep apnea are more likely to have it. An over or underactive thyroid can also boost your numbers. Now, say you go see your doctor for any of those problems. Your reading in the clinic might be higher than it would be at home, by as much as 10 points for the top number and 5 for the bottom one. It's called the white coat effect. Most experts chalk it up to feeling nervous in the doctor's office. And if you're chatting with the nurse while the blood pressure cuff is on, you may get a higher reading too. Numbers tend to go up when you start speaking, though the emotional content of what you're saying seems to have a greater effect than just the movement of your mouth. Now keep in mind that your blood pressure naturally goes up and down, and short-term spikes aren't necessarily a problem. The trouble comes when it remains high over time. So make sure you know the little things that can affect your numbers so you can get accurate readings to know if you're in a healthy range. All right, time for our tweak of the week. Keep strategic stashes of healthy snacks. Package single servings of trail mix, whole grain crackers, or dried fruit, and stock them in key places where hunger might strike, in your car, at your workstation, or even by the couch. You'll have an easy, healthy choice ready to go, so you're not tempted to hit the drive-through, the break room vending machines, or rummage through the freezer for some late night ice cream. Thanks for listening to Health Now this week, and take a minute to rate and review the podcast. It helps other people find out about the show. Talk to you next time.